If someone you love is struggling with their mental health, you don't have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 to get resources and support from trained crisis counselors who can help you help them. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be with you. I am the host of the show, Tim Whitaker. Friends, I'm glad you're here. And this is going to be, this is one hell of an episode. Let me just tell you, um, this episode, recording it was, um, it was something else. It was intense. It was beautiful. It was thought-provoking. I interviewed J.S. Park. I'm going to read his bio. He is a hospital chaplain. He works with grief support. He's a Korean American. He is a sixth. Uh, he is a sixth degree black belt, and he is a son to immigrants. And lastly, on his bio, ex atheist. Now, when I say ex atheist, you might think automatically something like Lee Strobel, who went from uh, being an atheist to now being this radical, like evangelical fundamentalist. That is not the story with JS. But I will say this is a really moving episode. This is a very, um, for me, a very emotional interview. Um, hearing JS talk about his time as a hospital chaplain during COVID just is really, oh man, it, it's just moving. So I, I hope you enjoy this episode uh, as much as I did uh, having the interview. And uh, yeah, I would love your feedback on it, but JS is super He's just a really awesome person. Uh, his his Twitter and his Instagram, I recommend giving them a follow. Just really empathetic and and um, man, conversations on there that 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 just move you. Sometimes they move you to tears. All right. That being said, friends, um, we are doing a live in person podcast recording with April A. Joy, who's a hilarious TikTok and Instagram person, also former evangelical, now more evangelical-ish, and Mike from Mad Priest Coffee. We love Mad Priest Coffee around here. We love their work, love their company. We're doing a Christmas-themed holiday extravaganza in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in person with an audience. Hopefully that includes you. The tickets are available in our show notes and of course on the link uh, in our bio on our Instagram, but it's going to be amazing. The title of the event is called Three Mad Men and the branding is the three of us um, were cartoon characters in like uh, wise men gear. It's hilarious. And so listen, this is going to be a great time. I really recommend grabbing a ticket, coming out, hanging out, meet me, meet Noah, he'll be there, meet Mike, and also meet other people in these spaces. Friends, I hear all the time, do you know where I can find people, where I, I can connect? Two things. Yes, you can go to our website, make a free account, and sign up on, on our map and see who's in your area. And number two, come out to a live event. Hang out with us. Meet new people. Be part of a, of a podcast recording. Let's have a good time. Tickets are available now. We chose 
intentionally a small space so we can really spend time and meet people and hang out. So tickets are extremely limited. They are on sale now. Link in our show notes or in our bio on our Instagram. So make sure you pick them up. Last thing I'm going to say is thank you so much To those of you who support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization. We do so much more than just podcasting. And without the commitment of donors like you, this work is not possible. So if you want to be part of that, we are trying to raise an additional $2,000 in monthly support to sustain us for 2023. That's the goal we have. That's what we're aiming towards. Right now, we need what that breaks down to is roughly about 90 people giving $20 a month, give or take. Listen, if you can't give 20 bucks a month, I totally get that, but that's kind of the math. It's not a whole lot of people, just a few. Giving 20 bucks a month can get us to the goal that we need to get to to make 2023 awesome and to keep bringing you podcast content and other content on our website, on our Facebook groups, our Theology 101 group, our docu-series that's coming out next year. And I don't think I told you this yet, but we are launching a second podcast. More details to come, but that's all all made possible because people donate to this work. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit. All donations are tax deductible. Thank you. Listen, if you, maybe right now you're thinking, Tim, I love your work. I just can't give. I get that. If you can give us a rating and a review on our podcast, that would be also so helpful. The more reviews and ratings we have, the more folks who share the podcast, the more people find out about us and recognize that there are faithful ways of being committed to Jesus outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. That's what we strive to do. We hold space for folks who are marginalized by the evangelical church. We advocate for accountability inside the evangelical church, and we help people explore the Christian tradition outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. For more Go to our website, thenewevangelicals.com. All right, friends, that's a longer intro than normal, but I want to get that off my chest. Without further ado, here is my interview with JS. Have a great, great week. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a hard time picking up and reading a Bible because your faith tradition ruined it for you, but you want to approach the Bible in a fresh way? Bibliotheca is a Bible that invites you to engage with the text in a totally different way, the way its ancient readers would have experienced it. Unlike a typical reference Bible that looks and feels like a dictionary, these books look and feel like inviting literature. You get five cloth-bound volumes, no chapters or verse numbers, no cross-references, no notes. Bibliotheca is currently taking pre-orders for another print run, and if you order now, you'll get special early bird pricing, and guess what? Big news. Your purchase will support TNE, that's us, as well. Use the code TNE22 when you check out, and $20 of every pre-ordered set will go toward the work that we do here at TNE. That is a win-win. Again, visit bibliotheca.co or check the link in our show notes, and be sure to use the code TNE22 when you check out. Thanks. All right. Well, um, J.S. Park, as you're known online, but June, as your friends call you, it truly is great to have you here. You know, it's been interesting because I think I, I think we met on social media maybe a few months ago, maybe like five, six months ago. I don't know. And and I think someone tossed me your account. I checked it out. And at the time, I think it, you had a few thousand followers. And then I blink, and you're at sixty four thousand <laughs> followers. And I'm looking at your posts. I mean. 
246,000 likes on 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 not just like a video or one tweet but a series of tweets. So clearly you've struck a nerve with people and I think we we can both say that we know that that likes and follows aren't everything. I totally understand that, but it's still very impressive um, just to see in in how short of a time you know you've really gone from someone who maybe has just been on Instagram to someone who people look up to and say, "Wow, like your stories are really impactful and changing how I see things." So with that introduction, thank you for making time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Tim, thank you. I'm I'm turning a little red. I appreciate you. Uh... Uh, blowing me up a little bit. I got to brag on you just because uh, I was saying before we hit record that you, your kindness, your compassion, reaching out to me, just how your your voice, your platform, all of it. I love you and I love your work. And uh, I'm I'm excited to be here with you. And um, that, that, everything you said is is much too kind. And, and <laughs> people, have, my, my wife has asked me like, what do you think it is? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. I feel like I'm just writing the same old things I've always been writing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I don't know about algorithm stuff or, you know, I had a blog back in early 2000. You remember blogs? Oh yeah. I had <laughs> yeah. one. Don't look it up, but I have one. It's, it's yeah, out there somewhere. Yeah. I had a, a Zanga and a, oh, yeah, I had Zanga. Um, yeah, and WordPress, <laughs> all of that. And I had yeah. zero, zero views and clicks for weeks or months, and, you know, entire, entire seasons to use a good old Christian's yeah. word. Um, yeah. Where I didn't have anybody looking stuff up or, or looking at my stuff. And so, it, I'm blown away. I'm constantly blown away. I never want to get over the feeling of just gratitude and that any, any time anyone resonates with anything I say, I'm just grateful. So thank you, Tim, for for having me on here. Absolutely. So um, on your Instagram bio, it says a lot of things. It says that you're a hospital chaplain, you're a grief support, uh, for, for grief support, a Korean-American, sixth-degree black belt, we'll talk <laughs> about that later on, son to immigrants, Ex-atheist loves Jesus. Now, now, okay, you're talking to a bunch of ex-evangelicals that might, for the first time, be considering agnosticism or atheism, right? Seriously, I mean, realistically, right? And and a lot of us in the circles I grew up in, uh, we read a lot of like Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, you know, and and how atheism has no has no healthy moral worldview. But I do want to unpack your story for a little bit because the ex-atheist part, I was like, you know, I'm really intrigued to kind of hear your journey from 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 kind of maybe how you grew up to kind of how you got to where you are now in terms of religion because I'll be transparent with you I don't um I don't meet a lot of folks like yourself with that kind of journey that are also doing really healthy Christian work does that make sense like I've met quite a few people who God bless them you know maybe were atheists at one point in their life but then kind of became militant fundamentalist Christians and I'm like oh man like you know how do you have that that kind of discussion but your journey looks way different from my vantage point so I would just love to kind of hear about that a little bit if you don't mind yeah thanks Tim you know to be fair I, I wrote that bio some years ago <laughs> and if I could if, I, if there were enough characters in that little bio thing I, I might add something like ex-atheist but you know sometimes we get back together Mm-hmm. And, and you know the loves yeah. Jesus part, loves Jesus sometimes, and also asks like, "What the heck are you doing?" <laughs> you know, totally. And, uh, I don't know if that's blasphemous, but no. I, I mean, I've been back and forth on that. I've been an atheist longer than I, I've been, you know, I've identified, I guess, or would call myself a Christian. And so mm. I grew up atheist, and I had a, a my mom was atheist, my dad he would describe himself as Christian, though he didn't always look that way, ideally. And my grandmother was a Buddhist. And so I grew up in a pretty eclectic household. Yeah. 
And I think um, I went from, I would say, pretty militant atheism to around college, I, I found this church and the love of this church was so strong and to me so supernatural mm-hmm. that I, I undeniably, for me, experienced God and God's love. But wow. it probably wasn't near the and I took seven years to graduate undergrad, which is a whole other story. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I still would I, I, I guess I was calling myself a Christian, but it was like clothes that I was trying on, you know, mm-hmm. just like, let me see if this dress fits. And then I decided I wanted to go to seminary. I was either going to get a degree in psychology or in seminary, like a, my PsyD, get a doctorate in that or go to seminary. And I thought, you know what, I'll go to seminary, even though I'm not technically a Christian, I guess, but I wanted to go to be a pastor to quote unquote, help people. Mm. And uh, I don't think I even really was fully a gospel believing Christian till the end of seminary. I remember the third year of seminary, something clicked. But when I went to seminary, Tim, what I didn't know was, and maybe I should have known, Mm. and I guess, you know, I can't claim complete ignorance, but really when I started going to church and going to seminary, I thought, um, when I started hearing about how the evangelical church felt about the LGBTQ community, how they felt about Democrats, Mm. uh, how they felt about anybody that was uh, not believing the word of God, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote. Yeah. I thought, is, is the church asking me to love less? Because I thought I came to this faith to learn to love more, mm-hmm. uh, to expand that love. And just through the months and years, I just started thinking, this, this is a, sort of an insider's club with bu- passwords and buzzwords and sort of like, here's us and there's them. And we are the, the the true people who are going to bring purity and a return to something, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, make us great again, which became make America great again, which, you know, we've seen how that's gone. And I, I, I have to say, honestly, when I went in, I didn't, I didn't know about all that. Mm. You know, I came in and I still, there's a Korean word, sunjinha. I'm a little naive. I'm very overly optimistic. Mm. Um drives my wife a little nuts because I just always have this optimistic explanation for everything. I don't see red flags because of my rose colored glasses, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, when I went in, that's, that's what I thought. And now I swung all the way to like being very deep, deeply steeped in, uh, in evangelical culture, but inside I remained affirming inside. I remain for justice and, and of course, pro immigration and uh, I just held all these justice values, but felt a little weird about talking about them in the mm. places that I was in. And uh, I'm not saying that makes it right, but I, me being a people pleaser and, and yeah. having codependency issues, I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to be the one to say, hey, are we doing this right, everybody? You know? Totally. Are, are we, yeah, are we really keeping the values of, of Christ and the gospel? So, you know, now having been removed from evangelical circles. I still feel like I have a foot in that world because naturally I want to be a bridge builder. I haven't just, you know, tossed out all my friends like that or, or, you know, even that whole space. But there's a part of me now where I feel more free to voice, well, this is where I'm at, you know, um, these are the values that I believe as far as this is what I believe the gospel and the Bible tells me. We are to love our LGBTQ community. I'm completely affirming. We are to be pro-justice, pro-racial justice. 
I mean, those things just make sense to me. If if Jesus becomes to me like the um, you know the one who is not with the poor, one who is not with the oppressed, you know, one who is not with those uh, refugees and immigrants, mm. to me that's not that's not what I understand the gospel to be, and that's always where I've been at, and just have been more vocal and loud about it lately. And so, yeah, I think um, it's been a weird journey, and I think I'm taking a long way around to answer your question, but I have come back to atheism several times. Mm. Um, the two major times that I have is one, when I was in my chaplain residency, chaplains do a year and a half training. It's a six month internship, year long residency. Mm. And uh, I lost my faith because I was just seeing too much suffering. Yeah. And there, there was a point when I was just like, I don't, I don't believe this crap anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the universe is haphazard, random, chaotic. There's no meaning. None of it matters. You know, I was seeing, yeah. uh, and, and content warning here, but I was seeing, you know, babies born just to die. Mm. And, I, and I know that the world is full of suffering and people die, but I just thought, why? Why, you know? So just seeing, not that suffering exists, but the degree of suffering, mm. you know, is what, is what got me to just say no. And, and each time I came back, my faith completely changed every time, you know? And uh, the only other time I can say I really lost my faith was during 2020, just the ugliness of the church during the pandemic. You yeah. Know, I still believe if the American evangelical church had advocated for masks and social distancing, we could have beat COVID in a summer. We would have been done with it. You know? <sighs> yeah. And just that, just seeing that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do know. Just see, yeah, because I, I worked in the hospital at the time, and I was just so angry just that what the church was talking about, you know, they traded compassion for conspiracy theories is what happened. And so for me to see that and then to see exactly what COVID does up close, I was just so enraged. I just thought, forget it. If this is the kind of God that makes this kind of church, why should I believe? And I did come back again after some time, but it's changed every time. Mm. Yeah. Was it, um, man, there's, I mean, I feel like just in, in that, in that, like you know monologue that you gave we could sit there for like a couple more hours unpacking so many important threads i think are so key right to understanding kind of just like i think a lot of us i i don't know for sure but i'm guessing most of the audience you know has kind of more of my story where, where we were kind of born into this kind of grew up in it right but we came to a lot of the same conclusions especially during 2020 and 2016 um when we saw how people that we thought we shared um, because we shared same beliefs, we automatically assume we shared same values, right? And then we're seeing people that we thought were like, for us, it's, it's a no-brainer, wear a mask. And we're seeing our neighbors saying, no, of course I'm not going to do that. that. That's the government, right? And it's, it is, like, I, I get that. I, I get the concept, at least, of like, how could I be a part of this? Like, how could I be a part of that? My question to you is, what was it like going from, you said that earlier, what what really changed your perspective on faith and on the Christian faith in particular was the overwhelming love that you received at this church. You call it a supernatural love, and said that you know you were just so enveloped by them that 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 you couldn't deny or or that you know that's something bigger than you or was going on. But then you mentioned how after you go through seminary and then you you are confronted with a the suffering of the world but also COVID, that really pulls you back from that. What what how did that make you like? In your head, was that like very hard to deal with? Of like, I don't get it. In one hand, I felt all this love 
but the same the same culture now is also loveless in so many ways. How did you wrestle through that? Yeah, and that's still something. That's a great question. I, that's something I still wrestle with because even during that time, and particularly in hindsight, I always, I still wonder: Did I just at that time in my not quite developed brain mm-hmm. have a psychological propensity to believe <laughs> that this social love and this community yes. was really coming from God, or w- was this just something that I just concluded on my own because I felt the rational explanation, God of the gaps, and all that? Totally. You know. And then the other thing about you know, oh, I met the, but these people are not. That's a true Scotsman fallacy. And so there's still a part of me that's very much still not completely 100% clear on in that time, did I really, really undeniably meet the fabric slash power slash source that holds all things together? Or did I just go to a social club and you know felt like I belonged somewhere for once mm-hmm. and then I extrapolated backwards and thought that was God? You know? Yeah. And now seeing the way that the church is, you know, maybe there's a part of me that thinks, did religion finally stop wearing the mask for me? Or, or I, I should say it like this, did, did religion finally reveal and expose itself for what it really is? Mm. You know, and maybe it was always like this. And the people that I just met loved in spite of, or they got together because there was a church that was available and, you know, they caught, they, whether consciously or, right, you know, just psychologically believe that it, yeah. So you know where I'm going with all that, right? I mean, it's it's basically I'm still wrestling with that confusion yeah. about um, was that really God that I met, or uh, is it really the concept of human love that I'm holding on to? And really deep down, I'm just a humanist, and I'm putting Christian language around it. Mm-hmm. Tim, I wish I had an easy answer for you on that. Because every day, I don't know. Some days I'm just like, man, this all sounds just ridiculous, you know? Mm. I mean, I, every year, this is a very (laughs) evangelical holdover, but every year I read uh, the Bible one time through. Mm. Um, It's been a goal for me. And this year I read it for Lent. So I read it in 40 days. Jeez Louise. (laughs) And uh, as somebody who many may say is progressive, um they may be shocked to hear that, you know, uh, for, for somebody who may think that I'm progressive, they, they may think, well, why would you still read that? <laughs> you know? And a part of me was like, why? Yeah. Why would I still read that? Um, but there's a part of me that's still very compelled to the pages of scripture, right? That is still very compelled by the things in it that make sense to me. There's so much that doesn't, but there's some stuff that does. And when I read it now, you know, I'm different than I was. There are parts of it that jump out to me differently than before. And so at least for me, the where I'm landing right now is even if it is not really God, even if it is not really some sustaining force or there's a source behind it, all of that. Right. At least for me, the language of scripture helps me to make sense of the world around me and are the words very often that I need to frame what's happening, especially the realities of suffering that I see all the time. And maybe one day that language, and it certainly that, that I've come up against this a lot, that language is not always enough. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that language is not always sufficient to 
through the suffering that I'm seeing and the suffering that I endure. And, but yeah, Tim, that's a back and forth pendulum. Every day I'm like, man, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm going to get off and I'm just going to say, forget calling myself a Christian. And then other days I'm like, man, I got nothing else left but faith, but to believe, you know? Yes. I, I resonate a lot with that. Um, I went through a couple of years ago, a pretty like just really intense season of like depression and panic and anxiety. I kind of came out of nowhere. And yeah. that was one of the first times where as I'm reading the Psalms, I was actually comforted. Like, oh my goodness, I'm not the only person who's suffered or asking these questions, right? Like there's, even thousands of years ago, there's this commonality of human of human suffering, in my case at the, at the time, of like, yes, like, okay, you know, or you're reading, um, you know, Ecclesiastes, right? And you're just seeing, you know, meaningless, everything's meaningless. And you're like, yes, that's, that's how I feel right now. So I, I understand <laughs> that. And I, I, I truly resonate too with the idea and concept of like, Am I am I experiencing divine love at the center of the universe, right? Or am I experiencing what my body is wired for, but in an individualistic capitalist framework, we're deprived of that. So when we have that, it feels like it's divine love. And in reality, it's just what we're designed to be anyway. You know, like I I, I get those things and I go back and forth too. And you know, ultimately I still land where it's like Ultimately, I have to think there's something deeper than just what I think is going on. And ultimately, I believe at the center of the universe has to be love. Um, and 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 how we flush that out in our context looks different than maybe how it was a couple hundred years ago. But that has got to be like like the ethic. I mean, I, you, you said that, that you have a two-year-old. So do I. Mm-hmm. When I look at my son's eyes, I'm like, I found God. Right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when, when I'm like, I'm tickling him and he's laughing and he, it's just pure joy. And I'm like... There it is. I have found the center of the universe, divine love. You know, like just this, this, this connection. And so, anyway, anyway, that's a side note. But that that has helped me kind of like think about some of this stuff for me in a different way. Um, one of the questions I wanted to kind of dive into for a little bit is, okay, so so you you go to seminary. You become Christian, for lack of, of a better term. You're back and forth, but then then you go into into being a chaplain, and you talk about just how like how suffering is is this is this it's this thing that completely makes you go, is there a God? Like what the hell? This is this is bullshit. Like this is crazy. You know. And you mentioned yeah. that you've just seen some terrible things. Do you are you still a hospital chaplain? Yep, for seven years now, exactly seven. Okay, so. How do you do it? I'm just being honest. I mean, yeah. I got two kids. I'm at the point now where I can't even watch a true crime documentary with kids involved. I'm just like, I can't take it. Turn it off. I, I just don't want to hear it. Cause I, you know, I just can't think about it that way anymore since having kids. And here you are actually meeting real, like, you know, like the rubber meets the road of humanity, seeing some of the worst things possible. And you're there for people. So how, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, just for context, um, I work at a level one trauma center. And so chaplains, we attend uh, every trauma that comes in through the emergency department, the ED. So that's uh, stabbings, car accidents, gunshot wounds, fires, falls, strokes, drownings. We see all of it. And we identify who the patient is and chaplains make the call to families to say your loved one is here. Um, We also attend every single death uh, we attend every single code blue, which means when a patient loses heart rhythm and resuscitation efforts are required, 
a chaplain uh, presides at bedside, and we connect the physician and or nurse to the family. And we receive family, if they're not at bedside, we, we can receive them at the door. And we do grief support, and we do something called Code Lavender, which is support for the staff. Sometimes we bring cookies or tea or a whole bunch of snacks uh, because nurses, physicians, PCTs, unit care coordinators, they go through it. Um, shout out to all of them. And um, we do advanced directives, which means essentially we are helping a patient to determine the decision maker for them in the case they can no longer make decisions and a living will, if they ever end up on life support, what their wishes would be then, which are impossible conversations. Uh, we attend family, which means if someone is not likely to recover, uh, most likely they're intubated. Chaplains are in the meetings where the physicians will break the news to the family and say, at this point, they don't have a probability of recovering. So we may need to go comfort measures only, which is a nice way of saying we may need to remove life support. And chaplains are there through that conversation. And when the team needs to go, chaplains usually stay afterwards for grief support. So I say all that because the, the job that I do, Tim, is impossible. It is impossible. Yeah. And I think all the chaplains, especially through the pandemic, I'm sure us plus all healthcare workers have some level of PTSD. And uh, to answer your question, um, how do I do it? You know, this may kind of harken back to what we were saying before, but I work with about 20 other chaplains or so. And we couldn't do this work without each other. And uh, I'm an interfaith chaplain, which means there are Christian chaplains, but there's also uh, Jewish, there's agnostic, uh, there are a couple of Buddhist chaplains, uh, and we work with every faith background. And so we are side by side in the fray, and we get to process with each other and hold each other up. Um, you know, we are each other's companions and compassionate care for one another, you know. And so when we find self-care, we look for each other for other care. Yeah. And uh, maybe somehow that's the love of God binding us or sustaining us. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just uh, seeing another human face doing the same work that I'm doing, mm. knowing that we're on the same page. You know, it's, I couldn't do it without them and I wouldn't do it without them. And I think so often what I feel sad about and what I'm understanding is that if the church model, quote unquote, was like a hospital where we're on the same page and there's this urgency and we're here to care for people, you know, we're, he we're here to be in the people's worst moments, but in church, it's also the best moments. Mm -hmm. If there was that urgency there, a church wouldn't look like it does today. And so in the hospital, there, there really isn't maybe time or space to kind of, you know, bite at each other or, you know, talk about what color paint should this be and have seven meetings about it, you know, Seriously, or, right. yeah, is this musical instrument okay? Or is this song theologically, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. those are maybe legitimate concerns if you're a pastor, but and in the hospital, there's something there where, where we're holding hands and we're like, okay, you know, 
uh, I got you, you got me. And we're here very often in the worst day of our patients' lives. Mm. And uh, I think it's each other that keeps us going through it. It's mm. the only way I've found uh, to get through that. Um, I've written before that uh, bearing the unbearable requires uh, somebody to bear it with you. It's, it's the only way, you mm. know. And, um, you know, there's this, see, I'm going to Bible verse you, Tim. <laughs> but Go my, ahead. My, five, <laughs> my favorite Bible verse is First uh, John 4.12, which says, No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God's love lives in us and is made complete in us. Mm. And so, like you were saying earlier, when you see your child, you see the face of God. And I think it, that's a line in Les Mis, you know, to see you is to see the face of God. Mm. And so in these visits, you know, it's only one another that gets us through it. And I, I feel like that's such a cliche generic answer, but man, I have tasted that in mm. the hospital. You know, I have seen it up like, I've just tasted the tangible visceral love when we're in that together, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, faith is shaken, but honestly, maybe this is blasphemous. I have faith in my coworkers. Mm. I, I really do. And somehow that not always, but can translate to faith in God, but I do have faith in my coworkers. I trust mm. them completely a hundred percent with my life and the work that I do. Mm. Um, how you mentioned that, um, the pandemic was really, it did a number on the hospital and healthcare system. You mentioned that, you know, probably everyone in those spaces probably has some form of PTSD. Um, how difficult, um, you know, was it as a, being a chaplain in hospitals during COVID? Um, was it just, you know, an unremarkable situation of just next level of, of suffering that you saw or was it just what was the combination of of just some of the responses by maybe patients or or our families saying this isn't a real thing and we obviously know being in evangelical spaces like you said really so poignantly um and i agree with you by the way that um you know if evangelicals weren't so anti-mask and they took covid seriously we probably could have beat it much sooner than than how long it took us to beat it right because unfortunately and i hate to admit it but it's just the reality white evangelicals in particular we're really on the front lines for all the wrong reasons, you know, from Sean Foy to doing his massless worship gatherings yeah. um, and, you know, um, just pastors and, and, and influential ones uh, like John MacArthur thinking that, 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 that they're standing up to big government by resisting, resisting mass mandates, you know, lockdowns. Um, how, how did that kind of ideology impact the work that you had to do in these hospitals? Yeah. So, Tim, I'm in Florida, and uh, oh my god, you can thoughts and prayers to you, my friend. Oh man. my goodness, all the Florida man stories, even yeah. worse than what the headlines say. Wow, wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, at the worst of it, yeah. during the Delta variant, which was about a year ago, um, I work in a thousand plus bed hospital, so. At the worst of it, we had about 270 patients that were COVID positive, many of them intubated. And so that's over one out of four patients at the hospital that have COVID. Wow. And uh, we, were, we were running out of room in the morgue, you know. Um, yeah. 
And I, I saw stuff that I still, you know, have nightmares about. I don't think any one person should really see. I mean, it was, it, I don't want to belabor the point only because I know people are probably tired of hearing about COVID and tired of saying they're tired about it. But uh, there are so many untold stories of the way people suffered and some of the attitudes towards COVID, even from patients' families, even from patients themselves. I, I, w- I wanted to hold space for, mm. here's a patient who has COVID and yet they are sometimes carrying the ideology of whatever Fox News is saying or whatever, you know, MacArthur or Sean Foyt or all of them are saying, right? Yeah, yeah. And even as people, patients had COVID, they may have held on to that with a death grip, you know, still. And I'm trying to hold compassion for this patient. I'm trying to hold compassion for families that have been duped. They've been tricked. They've been bamboozled and lied to about the seriousness of COVID. And many of them got COVID because they were lied to. Mm-hmm. What I eventually had to settle into was I, I was enraged most of the time. I was exhausted from just being so angry and and just seeing dozens of people dying every other day. Yeah. And uh, But there was a part of me that just had this well of compassion for people around me because in the end, where I settled into was these people were deceived. You know, and I'm not talking about the ones who they got it. They, they, they were safe. They did everything right. You know, right. Uh, quote unquote, right. Right. They, they, they did everything that they could. I'm talking about the groups, the patients who they just thought it's a hoax. It's never going to happen to me. I'll be fine. If I just pray, I got my prayer group that's working on it. Right. You know, I don't, I don't need all this, you know, and then the families who would, you know, sometimes say like, oh, oh, you're going to count this as 10 COVID deaths, aren't you? You know, you're going to pump up the numbers with the, My you know, God. things. I would hear things like that at deathbeds. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they really bought into all that. Um, but all I can say, Tim, is that I have, I, I don't want to sound condescending or pretentious or like I'm better than any of them because I do believe each of us, if we're hit at the right angles, we are all susceptible to some something like that ideologies, mm-hmm. you know, and many of us are walking away from those ideologies and it's hard because I, I've heard um, Shay Barfield say it this way, when you call out somebody on something that they believe that is harmful, they grew up in it. And what you're saying is your mom's a liar, your dad's a liar, your pastor's a liar, you know, your brother and sisters are, are liars. That's what you're really saying. Right. And that's hard for somebody to unplug from all of that. Yeah. You know, because coming to, true insight and self-awareness requires this very painful journey of stepping out of these concentric circles of uh, knowledge. And if you move too fast, it's like the matrix where Neo threw up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I just had a lot of compassion at that time. And it was really the only thing, it was like duct tape. It was the only thing holding me together at that time because I, I kept wanting to throw things. You know, and every time I heard another patient say this or another family member say that, man, I just wanted to throw stuff. Yeah. But uh, I just kept in my mind, like, man, they've been lied to. And so what, how can I bring graciousness in this situation to them? And honestly, I, I want to be bitter. I want to be angry. 
but I feel more deep sadness and compassion than anything. Mm. This restaurant is the hottest ticket in town, an incredible 12-course meal made from fresh, locally sourced ingredients. And now for your ninth and final course. Uh, did they forget the last three? When you don't get what you pay for, it can make you feel a little forgotten. A recent lab study found that most of the top CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels claim. But with Nextevo Naturals, you get 100% of what you pay for. I brought the drinks, ladies. Grabbed us a case of everyone's favorite hard seltzer. Let's celebrate. Hey, wait a minute. It looks like they came half empty. Maybe they forgot to fill them up all the way? You'd never put up with getting 60% of what you pay for. Why should your CBD be any different? Upgrade your CBD to 100% with Nextevo. Go to nextevo.com upgrade20 to shop fast-absorbing gummies, capsules, creams, and more. That's nextevo.com upgrade20. You mentioned that, that you um, work with like other chaplains of different faiths and traditions, agnostic. I think you mentioned uh, some other ones as well. How has working with them, you mentioned as well that you know uh, they really sustain you. How has um, working with them shifted how you see the world, right? Because now you're working with chaplains who have very different religious beliefs, worldviews, and it sounds like it's a pretty healthy system. So I'm sure you, um, when you guys have the emotional bandwidth, I'm sure maybe there's been times where you've engaged different ways of seeing the same reality, mainly death in this case, right, or tragedy. So how, how has being with those other chaplains um, influenced how you see some of the, the worst parts of, of human life, right? What does that look like for you? Tim, I am so lucky and I feel almost spoiled that I work where I do mm. because the people I work with are amazing. I've learned so much from them. And uh, I work in a pluralistic setting where we love one another, respect one another. I have gotten stuff from the Buddhist chaplain that I have incorporated with not just Buddhist patients, but all patients and so on and so forth with just different chaplains that have that have really enlarged and expanded my own faith in the way I see the world. And to me, it's just an ideal setting because I, I wish we all had more exposure to yeah. different backgrounds, different traditions, different cultures, all of that. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying anything new, but right. where I'm at, I just really get to be in it, really get to be saturated by other perspectives. And it has really brought brought me to this, you know, almost maybe more expansive, gentle, pluralistic view of God and the many different ways to reach God and our ideas of God. And re- really, I'm ju- I'm just lucky. Um, to me, it's 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 a it's a, a paradise and what I think heaven would look like. Mm. To be truthful, yeah. Mm. And uh, there's. C.S. Lewis writes about the group that he was in called the Inklings. And I know C.S. Lewis, there's there's mixed thoughts on him. He's somebody that in my early faith, I read a lot of. <laughs> Understandable. We all yeah. did that. <laughs> I mean, he was the first, yeah, he was the first person that like made faith make sense to me. Sure. For a while, right? Your and, Christianity you know, is still a great, really uh, well-respected book, right? Lewis Absolutely. is still my boy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, there's some stuff I still get a lot out from him. But what I really liked about his group, the Inklings, is he said that in that group, there are people of different faith backgrounds in there and they'd have conversations, they'd have meetups all the time. 
And as they were like, not debate, but they would kind of discuss or dialogue about what they believed about certain things, whether that was suffering or, or what should government look like, or, you know, as they were discussing these things, what they each realized was they each had a caricature view of the other person's faith. Mm. They each came in with the weakest idea of what that other person's perspective was. But once they actually started sharing about what their faith was, they realized, gosh, that actually does make sense. I see why you believe it. And that's actually a really strong case that you're making. Yeah. And it was the ideas themselves that rose to the surface, to the forefront. And then the ideas could interface with each other. And it was no longer the weakest argument or the weakest caricature, but really the best form of that idea. And so even if nobody's mind was changed in that group, still they gained a deep appreciation for the other person's belief and by hearing that other person's belief, they were able to expand their own. Yeah. And so when I say I'm an interfaith chaplain, like I really mean that in every sense of the word. Like I, I just feel like now my faith has been expanded by all these different concepts, ideas, rituals, traditions, and in, and in different languages, you know, religious languages. And so for me, I feel almost no conflict with, I really, I feel zero conflict with it. You know, yeah. uh, for me, I love it. I love being where I'm at to be able to work with all those different chaplains. And I just, it, to me, it's like, if I were to set up an education program for like people growing up, I'd be like, okay, you got to work six months in a restaurant, <laughs> right? I worked as a bus boy for like four months. Okay. What an experience that was. <laughs> I believe it. You know, and then uh, you got to work six months as a volunteer chaplain in a hospital. Because you're gonna see stuff and you're gonna learn stuff and you're gonna be you're gonna be way different by the end, you know. Really, any place in the hospital, just volunteer. Um, but yeah, yeah, it has it has definitely expanded me. Tim, I think you asked a second question in there, and I'll just maybe ten seconds on this, but about how I'm able to approach suffering um, through the lens of other chaplains and their beliefs. Yeah, like how how has has this interfaith community shaped how you view suffering now in death based on on their perspectives? Yeah, Tim, I think say is maybe blasphemous, but let's, let me try to put put these thoughts together because I'm going to put this out loud as I go. I'm ready. So there are certain faiths, for example, that they believe this is what has happened and this is God's will, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And as a person who has worked as a hospital chaplain for long enough, that to me is harmful and toxic theology. Mm -hmm. Because to say, God did this, God killed my, you know, dot, 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 or God gave me this disease, this injury, to me, that's harmful. But once in a while, I will meet someone in their particular faith who that's the one thing that they are holding on to that is getting them through their grief, their pain, their trauma. Yep. And I'll try to like navigate through that with them. I may ask questions. I may say, how has that worked for you? Or like, what's, is that giving you strength right now? And how I may try to like help them to see if that's okay. But at some point I realize, and this is not every patient, not every time when they say that, but once in a while, that patient, I realize this is the thing that's helping them. You know, when they watch that sermon of that pastor that I don't agree with, but their eyes are lit up 
And they're like, man, every time I, I, this guy's just saying weird stuff, but every time I finish that sermon, I feel better after my chemo treatment. I'm like, how can I take that away from them? Exactly. And so being expanded in different faiths, I recognize that just because I think this theology is toxic in my own view, and it may be toxic to me, there's a part of me that still believes some of that stuff is toxic, but it may work for that person because that's where they're, they're at right now. And again, I think we should each be held accountable to the toxic theology we have. I think there's a way to impose theology on other people that isn't healthy. Sure. I mean, there, it's a multi-layered conversation, yes. right? Yes. But um, there's, for example, a patient that I met who um, all they watched was Stephen Furtick. Mm-hmm. And, Elevation Church. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a big Furtick fan, you know, um, but he is a great inspirational speaker. And I've yes. heard his sermons. I actually visited his church once when I was taking a road trip up north and got to hear him preach. And I was like, man, this guy's gifted. And, and even though everything he's saying, I'm like, ah, I don't know if that's the right theology. <laughs> right. I did walk away. You know, I, I, I left the church feeling encouraged, right? Totally. And so this patient's telling me, man, I don't know. Every time I watch Furtick, I feel better. You know, it gets me through the day. And I wanted to be like, you know, well, did you ever think about that prosperity theology is false? Like I wanted to get on my, you know, soapbox right, and I wanted right. to get on my like, oh no, that you got to undo that theology, right. deconstruct that. And, here's why it's harmful, you know, you know? here's yeah. the Greek, here's the Hebrew, here's the context. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, but totally. Yeah. But working with other chaplains and the things that they believe that I may not necessarily agree with or, or, or you know, that I may consider not the best, but when I'm with patients, and they're grieving, and they're really holding on to something. I may ask questions, but in the end, I want to support them in the framework of how they believe and how they're getting through this crisis. Yes. We have to, just for one more minute, unpack this concept. It's very important because you're completely right. And I think sometimes as people in um, in my spaces that we exist in start to deconstruct or disentangle their faith, we unintentionally become ambassadors all over again for a new type of, well, no, this is wrong and this is right now. Like, okay, I have to tell you why your theology is definitely harmful. And to be clear, there are many people who would espouse such theology for other people, and that is harmful. Okay, I think John MacArthur is a good example of that. But you yeah. know, one example mm-hmm. I thought about was while you were talking was my mom. My mom's a, a beautiful soul. She loves God, loves Jesus. And both my, my, mainly my younger brother, um, he, he was, he really was never like a believer in a lot of ways. Again, when he, when he got older, he just kind of fell away, said, it's not my thing. I'm pretty sure he's an atheist now. And in the beginning, it was very difficult for my mom to handle that, right? Especially because she believed that if you're not saved, when you die, you know, it's not good. But then she would tell me like, you know what? God's in control. I trust God with it. I trust that God will, God is working kind of thing. Now, on a theological level, right? Now, <laughs> do I see things that way? Probably not. But but for, for my mom to hold that view, if that aids her and helps her release the, the, the desire to want to control and want to convert my brother, right? But instead, she trusts that God's doing something. If that belief is helpful for her, then she should hold on to that belief. Right now, if my mom started saying, Tim, you have to hold this belief, that'd be a different discussion. But she doesn't. She understands that, that we, that we see things differently. And I think that's really important because like you said so well, these things are very complicated. 
And, and just because some of us can look back at theology that we were taught as harmful doesn't always mean that for every individual who holds it, it's ultimately harmful for them. For some people, even though we don't understand it, it could be quite helpful in times of tragedy. I don't understand how John Piper can really say that, you know, um, if someone is abused, it was God's will, so take comfort in that, okay? Oof, I, I yeah. think that is incredibly toxic, yeah. incredibly harmful, all right, 100%. But if my mom can hold that God's in control and that he's working things out for the sake of my brother, and that gives her peace, I understand. Not my thing, but I understand, right? So it's really a razor's edge because because this theology has and can lead to so much harm. But sometimes people will hold it to kind of cope with things that are beyond their control. And that's when I think we have to be a little gracious and say, you know what? People are in process. We're all working through things. We all handle things differently. And if, in this case of my mom, if it helps her sleep better at night and she's more at peace and therefore more loving, how can I knock her for that, right? That's not, it's not my job to try and convert her out of that, that those theological frameworks. So I, I just want to unpack that while we, while we were there, because I think that's a very important point for the audience to think about as we disentangle our own faith and realize that, hey, maybe some of the, the theology that we grew up with was really harmful to us. That doesn't mean that in every single circumstance, right, it's automatically going to be harmful for everyone else who holds it in their own way to kind of cope with just the reality of the world, which is that it can be difficult, it can be tragic, it can be, it can be hard, you know, to, to get through uh, at times. So I think that that's really important. Um, okay. Um, I got a couple more questions for you. I wish we had all day, but we don't. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep moving here. So one of my other questions, um, I really, I really had, had two big ones. Then we'll maybe do some more lighthearted ones over time. But, um, in, in your, your chaplain work, how often, okay, well, actually, let me ask the question a different way. You posted, we'll start with that. <laughs> you posted on your Instagram um, I'm gonna read the the just the first slide of this tweet. I had a patient who was brutally assaulted, and his pastor told him, "You have to forgive him, or you'll go to hell." This is not the first time I've heard this. It's a theology that keeps the power with those in power. That pastor, by protecting the abuser, was protecting himself. My question to you is: How often do you see pastors like this say things that are so harmful to patients in hospitals? Like, is this a common occurrence, or is it like, hey? This happens once in a blue moon, or is it like I wish that I wish that pastors were were not allowed in hospitals, and that it was just the chaplain's duty to take care of people in the hospital? I mean, in, in seven years, you've seen a lot. Have you noticed any themes? Talk to me, June. Talk to me. Oh man, Tim, I'm a, I'm about to be a real jerk, and I'm gonna go a little against character. I'm gonna get real petty. When? <laughs> go ahead. Okay, so before the pandemic, we used to have pastors who would have chaplain badges and they were kind of, they had a little bit of access to, to be able to come in. When that was revoked because of the pandemic, we just couldn't have people going in and out. And we had no visitors for months, uh, you know, for that first year. We were so relieved that pastors lost their clergy badge. At any time we saw a pastor come into the hospital to be at bedside for their family member, I mean, I know that these families and the patient, they love their pastor. They want them to come. Sure. But just sometimes the sheer amount of preachiness and cold comfort, theology, all of that, you know, it just became a wet blanket on the room. Mm. And sometimes I could even see in the faces of the patient and family, like, I regret doing this. <laughs> wow. You know? And Jeez. when pastors, 
this this is not every pastor. Sure. But when I would go to visit a room, because sometimes the, the nurses will put in a consult and ask for the chaplain to come by for the patient. And, you know, we we make our way, we kind of read the room and see is the chaplain needed or not. But if I walk into a room and a pastor is already there, nine times out of 10, pastor looks at me and gives me that look like you're just a chaplain. You know? Yeah, it gives me that look like there's there's not enough room in this room for both of us. <laughs> like, you know. So I reckon I know that look. I'm never welcome in those rooms when a pastor's there. It's like a pastor treats that room like their territory. It's an ugly thing. And, and in my view, I think I get it, but also there's room enough here for both of us. It's okay. Right. You know, I'm not gonna undo whatever conversion <laughs> proselytization that you're doing here. Right. Okay, right. go for it, I guess. But that's that's not what I'm going to do. So I have, you know, I was a pastor for seven years. I did a lot of youth ministry and college ministry. Mm. So I have a lot of love for pastors. Um, I have a lot of love for church ministry. Uh, I know what it takes and I know how hard it is. It was never a right fit for me. And at the same time, man, pastors would do better to learn trauma-informed care, mm. they would do better to learn about crisis support. They would do better to learn psychological first aid. Man, they would do better to learn all these concepts that they keep calling secular, demonic, and worldly, and liberal. Yeah. These concepts. For me, I've written this before, all, all help is good help, and all good help is God's help. And I say that to Christians because it seems like anything outside the Bible, oh, we don't need anything outside the Bible because, you know, and for a church, wisdom perishes with us. And I'm just like, pastors, you, Christians, people of faith, it is okay to go outside your literature <laughs> and look at evidence-based research and see how humans operate <laughs> and see what works and what doesn't. I have led trauma-informed trainings before where pastors have literally walked out. Because they'll, they'll, they'll say something like, that's liberal leftist woke garbage, and they'll just Jesus. leave, you know? And I'm, I'm just thinking, there is a way to do this that incorporates faith, and religious trauma is a thing. Spiritual trauma is a thing. Church abuse is a thing. And if there's any way that I can possibly incorporate this sort of knowledge of trauma-informed care, um, of therapeutic responses, of active listening. If I can incorporate that in my care, why wouldn't I? And so I, I am very often disappointed, angry, even sometimes hurt by the way that pastors move through the hospital. And it's, I have a lot of compassion because maybe it, all they know is I got to convert. I got to, this is the moment to proselytize, which, which drives me nuts that they would use a deathbed for that. Maybe that's all they know. Maybe that's what they were taught. That's what they were indoctrinated with too. Like I was saying earlier, maybe they were just deceived and tricked into that. But I do wish pastors had the care to be able to hold the family without an agenda. And uh, that post that you read, I've heard some version of that definitely more than once and all kinds of just terrible toxic theology. And I just hate that Christianity seems to be sometimes a... I got to give this persuasive transmission of information to convert you into the thoughts that I have, you know, 
rather than Christianity as a story about the world and the way things can be. Uh, um, yes. Now, okay, so, yeah, you're right. I said a lot there, Tim, I know. Well, you said, you said a lot of great things um, that I agree with and that are also frustrating, like people who are walking mm-hmm. out of, of sessions because of leftist, quote, woke garbage, um, which, by the way, I can't say I'm surprised given how uh, Christian nationalism ideology far right media really disciples these folks at this point. And Florida, you know, Tim. Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Florida. Right, of course. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And out of out of all the places, there's 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 Texas and there's Florida. They're they're competing for which one Oof. wants to be first, right? So um, you know, what's interesting about this though, and this actually kind of goes into my second question anyway, so it's a perfect kind of segue. Um you you asked kind of like I'm not sure if they're indoctrinated themselves or if they're like you know promoting this theology and I'm kind of other perspective where it's kind of both in my view mm-hmm. because ultimately when you're taught your whole life that like the most important thing is that you don't burn alive forever when you die right um, when you see it through that and, and you're convinced a hundred percent objectively true that if you don't receive Christ as your personal Lord and save you Savior you're gonna burn in hell forever um, I when you have that perspective it makes complete sense why pastors feel the need on your deathbed to proselytize uh, because they think that once that person passes away their soul somewhere is just on fire for all of eternity I mean that that is a you, we can't underestimate the theology of ECT, you know, eternal conscious torment that that evangelicalism is steeped in. I mean, one of the examples that I cite often is the Francis Chan sermon from years ago, where he yeah. has this super long rope, right? It's such a it's such a brilliant illustration for those who hold this I've view. And he has like like maybe four <laughs> inches of, of of rope that's red. And he's like, okay, this is your life now. And then he starts pulling on the white rope, and there's like there's like a hundred yards of it. And he goes, this is all of eternity, right? And, and, and his whole point is to show how finite this world is compared to eternity. And so when 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 that's what you grow up with, like myself at age four, you're taught this. You know, age five, age eight, you're just taught. You pray the prayer. You become a Christian primarily, so you don't burn forever. And then you go to schools that reinforce this theology, right, of like this separation of the spiritual and the physical, and we have to save the soul because the body's passing away, but the soul goes on forever. This weird like Gnostic ideology, which I would argue isn't even biblical, but for a different day, right? So when you have that ingrained into you, and then you go to school and you're taught to read the Bible that way, even though you've been given some tools how to read the Bible, they reinforce the worldview of eternal conscious torment, right? And so you're you're really indoctrinated to see the world in this way of, oh my God, we have a secret truth that if everyone else knows, they'll be safe from wrath and judgment of God. And therefore, anyone who's outside of this framework is hostile and leading people astray. I mean, that's how the worldview works. Now, when you put that in, in a, a chaplain situation, Especially because there's this really weird um, um, preconceived notion that chaplains are automatically more liberal because they they work with people of different faiths and, and they and they won't say Jesus they'll say God for certain people right like 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 the fact that maybe you respect someone's religious beliefs makes you automatically not a a true Christian giving the truth to people right so when you when you put that all into the cake and you bake it you get this this attitude from pastors that's like elitist that is fundamentalist and that sees anyone else, especially other faith leaders, as automatically part of the enemy, right? Okay, you're doing work that's leading people astray. 
And my question to you, and this kind of segues into the question, is I feel like, and I'm, I'm, I gotta be honest, like I don't like thinking about death. You know, I'm 34 now, which means I'm, I'm getting closer and closer to just, I'm just realizing like that, you know, life is, is not permanent. You just realize that, right? When you're 18 or 20, it just feels like life goes on forever. And you're, you, you have kids, you start thinking about like, oh my God, when, when my son's 10, I'll be like, oh, I'll be 40. That's really weird to think about. You just, you think about life differently and you realize that one day you're not going to be here. Like you're just not, you're just not going to be here anymore. I feel like not only is the American society death adverse, like we don't handle death well, um, we're trying to always escape thinking about it, but our, our evangelical culture doesn't really have a good answer for suffering or death besides, well, pray the prayer so you don't burn in hell forever. So I feel like a lot of these pastors don't have good answers because they were never given good tools to really consider what honestly is a very natural thing. We're all going to pass away at some point, um, even if it happens in, at different levels of, you know, painless or painful. Um, and so my question kind of wrapped up in all of this is like, I think that society is death averse. Do you think that society is, 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 is not willing to engage, you know, death in a, in a healthy way? And how does that impact the work that you do as a chaplain? Because I mean, I would imagine you see people who are quite scared. I mean, rightfully so, you know, of, of, of realizing that, oh my gosh, like my life might be ending or having someone in the room who realizes that person's life is ending or having a pastor in the room who has no good answers, but doesn't want you in that room because you're the enemy, right? Yeah. So like, what are your thoughts on some of this stuff? I know I threw a lot at you, but like, I'm kind of processing this with you in real time. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think we can handle death well as a society at all, <laughs> period, let alone yeah. in, in evangelical spaces. Tim, I feel like this could be a whole part two for Ooh, the podcast. We're gonna we're gonna tease them, but I'm gonna yeah, but I'm gonna give you maybe um, Fair yeah, I give I give you the the short answer on that. To to quickly answer your question, I absolutely believe that Westernized culture as a whole is very death adverse, but also globally, there's a lot of death aversion as well. Hmm. There's a book that I recommend called From Here to Eternity by Caitlin Doty. And she was, I believe, a funeral home director who traveled the world and looked at different, what she called death engagement process. So she would look at other death engagements and see how people in different cultures treated death. And she found, for example, one culture, they, when somebody died, they would have a Viking funeral pyre. They would just light the body on fire on a mountain for all the town to see. Another one, they put it in a glass coffin. They would display them for several days because they wanted everybody to be able to see this dead body. Another one, uh, every summer, this one, I, 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 hopefully I'm not saying this wrong. It's a specific tribe. Every summer they would exhume their mother or father who had died and dress them up. They were mummified and have tea with them for like a whole summer. And so you have different cultures that are engaging with death fully not adverse to it. And death is not treated as some kind of macabre horror movie, scary, grotesque thing, right? But rather, this is the part of life that everybody eventually comes to. Right. And instead of jettisoning a body six feet underground into a burial and moving, removing all their stuff, selling all their stuff and saying, we're going to let go and move on and get over it and turn the page. Rather, there's remembrance and honoring and memory. If you think of Dia de los Muertos and the shrines that are built to families and ancestors, in Korean culture, my culture, we celebrate death days as well as birthdays. Interesting. And, yeah, and so death very much is a taboo topic. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that historically, anthropologically, 
um, oppressive nations when they were conquering conquering smaller nations to annex them and subjugate the people, they would not let that smaller nation grieve as they were oppressing them. Because out of grief could come rage, then retaliation, then rising up. And the nations that were doing the oppressing, they wouldn't have time to grieve because they were so busy conquering. And so if you do that for decades, millennia, tens of thousands of years of oppressive nations subjugating smaller ones, annexing them, and suppressing the grief process, what we have now is it is easier to suppress grief and it's the way that it's always been done because we just need to keep going and conquering. And with capitalism and with the culture of hustle and accomplishment, I don't have time to pause and grieve my losses. I just have to keep accomplishing. So capitalism is really just another form of oppressive conquest. And so what you have now is a culture that doesn't want to pause and acknowledge death or embrace any part of it because it reminds people of their mortality and also because we're so busy achieving and conquering that I don't have any time to pause and grieve at all. And all of that, I wish I had evidence for it. Some of that is my speculation. But if you look even several hundred years ago in what they call the wild, wild west, you ever seen those pictures of family members who have died and they would dress them up and stand them up and you would have, it was like those old, you know, giant cameras that you would have to drape a blanket over your head. You'd have the photographer and giant flashbulb. Even just a few hundred years ago in the wild west, they have pictures of a dead family member propped up and they would take a picture with them when they died. Because for them, it wasn't strange to have a picture like that of their deceased family member. And now it's almost unthinkable that we would do anything like that. It'd be shocking. Yeah, it would be shocking. Right. And so, you know, recalling our ancestors and and embracing death as a way of life, not saying that's not hard, not saying that's not painful, not saying that we don't grieve in a healthy way when death happens. Of course, there's going to be sorrow and anger and all of that. But, and, and I'm not even saying that we just accept death but rather acknowledging and embracing death in an engagement process that doesn't avoid or deny or suppress, but instead lets it all in, uh, that's something that is a lost language. Mm. You know, they say languages are dying every day. And that's one of those languages that sometimes has a resurgence, but it's very often dying out. And so, Tim, what I see so much in the hospital and what I, what I try to do is in some sense be a death translator, Mm. um, a grief translator. And I'm not saying I know more than anyone else, but very often people don't have the words and the language and the naming of emotions that come with that grief. And very often people are taught the wrong way about, and when I say wrong way, they're taught to suppress it and deny it and avoid it. I've seen grown men and women beat their chests, you know, trying to suppress that, those tears and that anger when grief comes. And, um, you know, people will talk very, they will say, I need to get over this and I just got to move on with my life. And I'm just like, but, but do you need to, mm. is it moving on or is there a way that you can move with this? Mm. You know, so that's part of my role. And it's a very sacred access and an honor that I have with these patients and their families that I'm letting them know grief is okay. That, that grief is a part of our lives. Mm. And uh, how can we talk about death in a way that it's not taboo, uh, but rather we can move with it? Well, I think we should end on that note, frankly. I mean, I, 
we definitely need a part two because we haven't even talked about your karate skills yet. And, you know, I mean, there's so much, uh, so many other things I want to unpack there, but honestly, I mean, you know, June, I really can't thank you enough for coming on and just sharing about the, I mean, I, maybe looking at it through that Christian lens, this very like uh, hands and feet of Jesus, <laughs> like, we'll put it through that language, but really, you know, like, like we, we like to think that, that God is at least as nice as Jesus. That's what Trip Fuller would say. And and I think mm. that, you know, as people, as humanity, we're, we're intentionally designed to reflect the image of, of the divine physically in like physical places. And I feel like the work that you're doing is just one of like the most brightest ways to do that. Um, and I really appreciate that. You know, I mean, I know that, that, that the work you do is clearly not easy. You see a lot of things that um, as you said, you know, people shouldn't have to see, but it is really um, sacred work, like you said, that you're doing, uh, working with people in these situations and in these moments in their life that um, we don't like talking about, right? Or we like ignoring or pretending that, you know, or we we Hollywood them, like, you know, they're just, yeah. it's like, it's sensationalized, yeah. right? Um, and we become kind of desensitized to the real suffering of people um, and just parts of the world that 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 we see through the lens of just CGI and the, you know this guy whatever just happened was didn't really affect him emotionally that kind of stuff. So anyway, yeah. you know I, I appreciate that. Where can folks find you? I mean, obviously you're on Instagram. You want to plug it? You know what, what your Instagram channel is? Sure, uh, Park Three Thousand. And well, I'm also sorry, on- you cut out there. Say it one more time. No problem. Uh, JS Park 3000. Okay. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. So my Instagram, I carefully craft my thoughts. Twitter is like my real live. Sometimes I regret posting Same. my thoughts. <laughs> I don't share my Twitter anywhere. I'm like, whoever finds it, finds it. I'm, it's not even going to be on our website. I'm like, sometimes my, the takes are just a little too spicy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Well, I'll make sure to put that, uh, put those links in the show, uh, show notes. And again, June, I, I appreciate making time and I wish you and your family the best. Tim, much love and gentleness to you. Thank you. Thank you. This restaurant is the hottest ticket in town. An incredible 12-course meal made from fresh, locally sourced ingredients. And now for your ninth and final course. Uh, did they forget the last three? When you don't get what you pay for, it can make you feel a little forgotten. A recent lab study found that most of the top CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels claim. But with Nextevo Naturals, you get 100% of what you pay for. I brought the drinks, ladies. Grabbed us a case of everyone's favorite hard seltzer. Let's celebrate. Hey, wait a minute. It looks like they came half empty. Maybe they forgot to fill them up all the way? You'd never put up with getting 60% of what you pay for. Why should your CBD be any different? Upgrade your CBD to 100% with Nextevo. Go to nextevo.com upgrade20 to shop fast-absorbing gummies, capsules, creams, and more. That's nextevo.com slash upgrade20.